and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And our movie today is a fun one. This is a personal favorite of mine, a kind of quirky little comedy from 2006 called Burn After Reading, a uh, Coen Brothers comedy. I've heard some people call it a lesser Coen Brothers movie, which I will totally disagree with, because this is one of those movies that the more I watch it, the more I appreciate it. It really makes me laugh, and my wife and I were just howling the other night watching this movie. I hadn't seen it in a while, and I'm like, you know what? I really want to do about a Staff Picks episode on this movie, because it's one that I think uh, people with a certain type of humor, certain type of sense of humor will really enjoy. So uh, I was looking around. I Luckily, I found a couple friends of mine that happened to like Burn After Reading just like I do. And I'm bringing on a uh, first-time guest for this one. Let's see. He's a listener of Staff Picks. He knows most of my episodes. Uh, I've never had him on before. But I know he has done podcasting. He's done some sports podcasts, NFL stuff. He's a big Coen Brothers fan. And I'm meeting him for the first time. So uh hope you'll enjoy our show as we delve into Burn After Reading. Welcome to Staff Picks. Uh, we'll call you John Ha. Awesome. What's up, Mario? It's good to be here, man. <laughs> For the record, your last name is not really Ha. That's just how you no. go. It's just a nickname. Like my name, it's it's kind of hard to pronounce, and I just sort of embraced it. Uh, decades ago, I started a job, and there were several Johns there, and they put um, there was a John Homer that worked there, and they just put on our schedule John H A, and everyone just said John Ha, and it's just been my name ever since. So, going <laughs> almost two decades strong with, the, with my name not being my name. All right. For the record, let's say your full name at least once. What is your full name? I'd just like to hear it. It's pronounced Houter. Houter. Okay. And it's spelled, there's like eight extra vowels in there. Yeah, I know. It's a, it's some sort of European name. If And I'm terrible at not knowing my genealogy. I have no idea where it comes from. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're John Ha, so now you're Chinese. So now you know your genealogy. That's yeah. right. Perfect. <laughs> Yeah, I've actually been asked if I was Vietnamese before. <laughs> and I don't know. Obviously, you can't see me, but it's very clearly I'm not Vietnamese. <laughs> so welcome to the show. I'm, uh, I was so excited when I heard that you've listened to a lot of my episodes before. Awesome. Yeah, no, I, I'm a big movie fan. So it's like I will usually just kind of go through uh, a podcast. If it's a movie I've seen before, I just love going through and I'll listen to it, kind of get you in the mood to see the movie again. Or if you've just seen it, kind of revisit it. So it's always fun to uh, listen about podcasts, about uh, films you love. OK, well, uh, why don't you tell people a little bit about you, uh, kind of your history with this movie, who you are, kind of the general stuff here? Uh it's just your standard, regular, boring guy that just sort of grew up at the movie theater. I worked at a movie theater in high school. I've always been a movie fan. When it comes to this one, I discovered the Coen Brothers, I want to say, with Fargo when I was probably 15. I was well, I was raised in somewhat a sheltered household where R-rated movies were very much forbidden, and I sort of snuck my movies in, and I discovered Fargo and thought it was the funniest, craziest thing i ever seen, and I just sort of finding anything the Coen Brothers had done, and... About 2007 is when they did No Country for Old Men, and then they did this one right after that, and it's the one that kind of got snuck away from a lot of people, which is the reason why I think it uh, is ignored, is that it wasn't the No Country for Old Men movie. Yeah, and would you agree with me that a lot of people would consider this a lesser Coen Brothers movie? Yeah, it's an underrated Coen Brothers movie, and I think it's just because of timing, and I think if people would sort of pay it more attention, they would love it as much as they do as any others. Yeah, it's funny when I was watching it the other day, because I've seen this movie maybe five or six times now. I kept thinking, 
this movie is really similar to Fargo. It's just yeah, a bunch of bumbling criminals trying to be masterminds and nobody can figure it out. And it all spirals horribly downward. Like it's not quite as broad as Fargo, but it's really similar. Yeah. I have a theory that like the Coen brothers themselves, all their movies have this sort of thing where things happen in the movie that just sort of don't make sense. And I think the Coen brothers, when they're writing the script, just sort of have like an inside joke of like, it's going to be really funny to watch the audiences sort of scratch their head and figure (laughs) out what's going on. And then they decided to make a whole movie of that. And that's what this movie is. (laughs) That's a really good description. Yeah, it's the audiences are is is sort of baffled by a a Coen brothers movie. That's how I one thing because I will say personally, I didn't like Fargo the first time I saw it. I didn't really get why it was so widely praised. And then I saw it the second time, and I'm like, this is fucking amazing. How did I yeah. not love this the first time? <laughs> it's really good. I think the top three is it's the, the best of their movies, I think, is No Country for Old Men, Fargo, and my favorite's Big Lebowski. And mm-hmm. I think they get the appropriate amount of love. But this one I'm glad we're shedding some light on because these one, this one I think fits up there with their type of humor and darkness. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned Big Lebowski because that's one that gets pitched to me all the time on staff picks. They're like – Oh, let's do a Big Lebowski episode. I'm like, how could that movie possibly be under love? Everyone loves that movie. There's a Lebowski fest for crying out loud, which I've been to, by the way. But it's still, it, yeah, that one gets enough love. And I will say, that's another movie I didn't like the first time I watched it. I didn't really get it. I'm the same with that one, too. I ended up growing in appreciation with it over time. Okay, but so you would put Fargo, Big Lebowski, and No Country for Old Men as your top three. Yes, for theirs. I think just in terms of like their the best movies they made objectively, I think those three are the best. But in terms, everyone has the the ones they love. I know there's the, a lot of love for Inside Lewin Davis. It seems like mm-hmm. um, a serious man is one that I think uh, is underrated as well. But it's not as good as the one we're talking about today. Okay, yeah, because I'm I wouldn't really describe myself as a huge Coen Brothers fan. Like I like some of their movies, but there's just as many ones that I don't like. Yeah, they they are hit or miss for me as well. There's a lot of directors that like when they make a movie, I'm gonna go see it. Like mm-hmm. like like Scorsese's gonna do a movie, I'm gonna see. It. I don't care what it's about. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson, I'm gonna see one of his movies when it comes out. Tarantino, these are the guys, and the Coen Brothers fit in that. I'm not always gonna love it, but I'm just gonna see it because they've had enough goodwill with me that we're in it. Okay, yeah, that's good, and that's I I think a lot of people would probably agree with you. They're kind of. They're kind of cult favorites. If you like one yeah. Coen Brothers movie, you kind of like. I'm I'm kind of an outlier that I don't like all of them. No, I I'm in there too. I I don't love them all, like, but uh, I like more than I hate. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you mentioned No Country for Old Men because that's one I've only seen once and I don't remember it. So oh the, yeah, yeah. The fact that you're so high on it makes me think maybe I should watch that one again. Well, it's the least Coen Brother movie like. But it's objectively a, an amazing movie. I think it's it's more serious than not. But they have moments that are very Coen Brothers in it that you can still feel their influence on it. Mm-hmm. And it's based off of a book, which they don't do very often. So I think they stick more to the source material. Because if you read the book, it's definitely more um, that tone rather than what they like to do. Okay, well, good. So now I already have some homework. I'm going to go watch that movie after this podcast. Thank oh, you. Oh, perfect, yeah. <laughs> Now, back to Burn After Reading, uh, <laughs> I, I almost don't even know where to start with this movie, because this is, uh, like, how would you summarize this movie in, like, a, a, a paragraph for people? Oh, boy. The, um, really just, you're not going to get a lot out of it. 
I, well, I don't want to, to summarize it really is like to spoil it because I think the best way to describe it is the ending with J.K. Simmons where he just sort of shrugs and says, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And, okay. I was just talking about this movie the other day on Facebook and I had a couple of Facebook friends say, you know, I watched Burn After Reading, but I didn't really like it. It wasn't really my oh. thing. And I think that you have to have a certain type of cynical sense of humor to really, really love this movie. I agree. Yeah, I definitely am a kind of person that's cynical and has a dark sense of humor, and this is right up my alley. <laughs> yeah, this is it's like a Seinfeld episode. They always said on Seinfeld, no hugging, no learning at the end. That was the rule. <laughs> like, literally at the end of this movie, we will we will learn absolutely nothing, and they'll point out we've learned nothing, and that's the whole point of the movie. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> they said, well, we just figured out to do it again if we knew what it was. <laughs> yeah, okay. So... I don't know if I should tell people to watch the movie before listening to this podcast, because sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But I really think if we walk you through the plot, which we're going to do, you'll appreciate it just as much. It's possible, yeah. I would always recommend to watch it first, because why not? Why not see the movie and then maybe get get further discussion with it? Okay, that's good. So that's our recommendation. Go watch Burn After Reading. And you'll probably maybe like parts of it and laugh a couple times and maybe think, yeah, that is kind of a lesser Coen Brothers movie. And then listen to us talk about it and then go watch it again. And then I think you will really love it. And just know going in that there's no point to it. It, it makes it, It's not supposed to make sense. I think that they're they're playing a joke on you, trying to make you feel like it's important, but it's not. Yeah, this movie feels like they're punking you. Like they just they're playing yeah. a joke on the audience. Like you think this is like all profound and significant. It's not at all. Exactly. I was doing some research and um I just did some like IMDb trivia and they were making a note about the person who did the score, the music for the movie. And when they were trying to disguise um or trying to settle on a score, they told the I wish I knew the person who did the score. They said, I want something bombastic that suggests meaning, but without meaning. <laughs> that is so perfect. Meaning yeah. without meaning. That is this movie. <laughs> yeah, for people who have never seen the movie, and again, I, I hope you do watch it before you listen to us. But the basic storyline is there's really just three storylines. It's kind of Pulp Fiction-ish with three <laughs> separate storylines. They're all going to come together at the end. And it's all based on misunderstandings and people thinking they're more important than they really are. And nobody is important whatsoever in this movie, but they all think they are. And it all ends in tragedy for everybody. Yeah, perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's it. And there's a couple scenes in this movie that I think are as funny as anything in Fargo or Big Lebowski. And I kind of forgotten about them. Yeah, definitely. I think Manolo is an all-time character for me. Manolo. And we got Brad Pitt as a... Oh, Brad a, Pitt, yes. Someone the other day described him, if you've ever wanted to see a human being act like an a, a Labrador retriever in a movie, watch Brad Pitt in Burn After Reading. <laughs> yes, and then like a very uh, a very desperate puppy is uh, uh, Richard Jenkins in Burn After Reading. <laughs> yes. Okay, let's see. I don't have a lot of trivia about this movie other than uh, John, John and I were talking about it before we started this episode, and we were both shocked how short this movie is. Yeah, it's very quick. It's in and out. It's a, it's a quick wash. Yeah, this is not an epic like Fargo. It's not a huge, long investment like Big Lebowski. That feels like a like a like an event when you watch that movie. This movie, there's three storylines, and it's done in 90 minutes. It's so light. Mm-hmm. Goes down smooth. It goes down smooth. And I think I read somewhere in the trivia that uh, when they sat down to write this movie, they basically wrote every role for a specific actor, and they ended up getting everybody they wanted. 
Yeah, how lucky is that? It's never happens. And, and big names, too. Oh, yeah. And I, I think I read some one trivia piece of trivia where ba- Brad Pitt read the script for this movie. And he's like, my character is the stupidest human being alive. You really wrote this for me? And the Coen brothers are like, we think you'll be just fine at it, Brad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I think he is great at it. This may be one of my favorite Brad Pitt performances. <laughs> it's not a very typical Brad Pitt performance, Definitely one would say. Definitely not. Yeah. yeah. Okay, we'll go through this movie. This might be a short podcast. Like I said, it's only three stories. There's only like six characters in the movie. (laughs) But it's, yeah, it's like Fargo, but set in Washington, D.C., and everything will end horribly for everybody. Yeah, so it's it's very cheery. We're laughing a lot, but there's a lot of death and carnage throughout, but it's it's great. (laughs) Yeah, this is one hell of a dark comedy. Would you you describe it as that? (laughs) Yes, very much so. I was trying to pitch it to my mother the other day. It's not up her alley at all. So I'll be curious to see what the feedback is if she does watch it. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Again, there's a couple movies I did. I also did a uh, Staff Picks episode on a movie called Very Bad Things, which is like the (laughs) darkest comedy ever. But I said, you know, I love this movie, but I would not recommend this to my grandmother, which I'd probably say about Burn After Reading, too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But again, if you're of the right mindset, if you like comedies like this, this movie is like crack. This movie's so perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an adrenaline rush of Coen Brothers. <laughs> okay, so let's start with uh, storyline number one. Again, it's three concurrent storylines all going on, all independent of one another, but they'll somehow interact and spiral into tragedy by the end, even though nothing happens. And our first storyline is the one about Osborne Cox. Wonderful Osborne Cox. Yeah. So describe Osborne Cox to people who maybe have never seen this movie. Uh, Osborne Cox is, well, I would just say it's John Malkovich. Um, and that really is perfect. You know, they said you said that they wrote it for specific actors involved. I can't think of any more John Malkovich. Being John Malkovich couldn't be more John Malkovich. Uh, <laughs> but he is sort of a... He's a low-level analyst for the CIA, I'm guessing. Uh, I don't get exactly which branch of government he works at, so I'm guessing CIA. Um, but he's an analyst, very low-level, but he thinks he's at a high level, and he thinks he's very sophisticated, but he's quite aloof with a severe drinking problem. <laughs> okay, so John Malkovich yeah, plays Osborne Cox as this uh, analyst, has a stick up his butt about six feet long, He's the most uptight person ever, and Osborne Cox is forever thinking he's a genius and everybody else is an idiot and nobody gets him. That's right. That's right. He has the keys to it all. (laughs) Yeah, so he's like just some low-level flunky that works at the Pentagon, and the movie opens with him being fired. That's right. That's right. He's one of those employees that uh, uh, you know in every job that thinks that the place will fall apart without him. (laughs) Yeah, and I love, he's got a little bow tie on. It's such a perfect, uptight John Malkovich role, and he's going to get so pissy as this movie goes along. That's right, very much so. Well, he's being crucified for crying out loud. Okay, yeah, so the movie opens with him being fired. The CIA says, or the the Pentagon says, you're not doing a good job, you have a drinking problem, and Osborne claims that it's political, he's being crucified. That's right. uh, (laughs) He has some great lines here at the start. He just is so pissed off. It's great. It's fantastic. The way he just throws a little hissy fit. Sorry, hissy fit about being fired is so brilliant. He just sort of throws his tantrum and just tells everybody off and storms out instead of instead of taking any kind of pension or demotion or anything. Just quits his job right there. 
Yeah, and the thing is, we're going to jump a little ahead, but he's going to get revenge on the Pentagon. He's going to write a memoir about all his inner workings as a low-level flunky at the Pentagon. And that's going to be the whole impetus of this movie, his revenge book. That's right. It's it's the MacGuffin, really, of the whole movie is this this memoir, as he pronounces it, of course, as he's got the uh, uh, upper-class sophistication, proper prince, uh, or French pronunciation of memoir. And it couldn't be any more... Uh, remedial and boring of a memoir, but it's quite explosive in his eyes. <laughs> I'm just laughing. I'm cracking up already thinking about the plot of this movie as we're, we're it's, five minutes into the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Ozzy, Osborne Cox, I'll call him Ozzy later, he gets fired and he goes home and we meet his wife, who is Katie, played by Tilda Swinton, who I think uh, I would best sum her up very accurately by saying she is an ice-cold bitch. Yeah, <laughs> she might have a bigger stick up her ass than Osborne Cox. <laughs> She's, well, I, I get more trivia. Uh, she said, when she was describing her hairdo, she said, give me Edna Krabappel, if you're familiar with The Simpsons. She said, like, just like, make me make me look like Edna Krabappel. But she's very cold. She's very dismissive. Um, she seems to just... Be very. I, I'm trying to find the right adjective, but again, I think you. I think you summed it up perfectly. It's an ice cold bitch. Yeah, and she wears it proudly. She loves it. Yes, she doesn't care. Yes, I, there's a scene later on that she's actually a pediatrician. She's a doctor <laughs> for, for children, and she's just scolding a child in in a physical exam. She needs the child to open the mouth so she can take a look at the tongue, but she's just just berating this poor child who just doesn't want to cooperate. It's it's fantastic. I love that. I'd forgotten that detail until I watched it. That she is the coldest human being possible, yet she works with children. Yes, right. <laughs> it comes up late in the movie that you just you don't really know what she does. You know she's a doctor, but then you see that it is with children, and she's just so mean to this poor child. <laughs> okay, so Ozzy comes home from being fired. He tells his wife, "I'm going to write a revenge memoir against the Pentagon," and she's like, "Why? Who would read that?" Yeah. He's like, "I have lots of explosive information." So. Blah, blah, blah. Their marriage sucks. They have There's no love here. They're just, you know, rich Washington, D.C. socialites. And now we meet the third person because apparently his wife, Katie, is having an affair with one of their neighbors. And this is, uh, I always forget his name, Harry Farrar, played by George Clooney. This is kind of a not George Clooney-esque role either. Now, why? Because he is uh, kind of a loser? Well, he's kind of a loser, you know, he, yeah, when you think of George Clooney, you think of a guy who's very, you know, smooth, which I guess he is smooth here. Um, I was, when I was pitching this movie to my mother, I said pretty much most characters in the movie have just really two strong characteristics, and George Clooney is stupid and horny. <laughs> he really is, yeah, the whole yeah. movie, George Clooney is a player. He's sleeping with every woman in Washington, D.C., he's an internet date troll, he meets women, bangs them, goes for a run, and then comes back to his wife, who writes children's books, which I love that, too. Yeah, that's all. She writes, like, political children's book, too. There's a later on, they're talking about, like, it's a, the, the, a little child, or it's a little cat. It's a little cartoon cat in the book that's performing a filibuster in Congress. <laughs> I, I'd forgotten that. So you're making me laugh just describing that again. It's little throwaway details that you don't really notice until you like really rewatch it when you have to do a podcast about it. But it's brilliant. Yeah, because children really do need to learn about the filibuster. 
That's right. <laughs> Very important. I remember the episode of Teletubbies that was all about the filibuster. That's right. <laughs> it's just groundbreaking. <laughs> okay, so these are the three. There's Ozzy and his wife, Katie. Katie's having an affair with Harry Farrar, uh, George Clooney. And this is really going to be the main uh, impetus for the movie. These three, we're going to meet one of the, two of their characters later. Uh, yeah, yeah, two of the characters later, I think, are the main characters. But yeah, these are the setup. These are the uh, these are the main players. Yeah, these are the oh, these are the movers and shakers, the rich people. Okay, and so this is where Osborne, John Malkovich, goes home and he tells his wife, "I'm going to write a memoir. They fired me. I'm going to bring down the entire Pentagon." And like. She's like, she just laughs at him. She's like, why? Who cares? And this is where we learn that they're going through a divorce, and she's going to sneak attack him with a divorce. Oh, yes, right, by the most pleasant lawyer I've ever seen. Yeah, what? Well, so he gives her some advice. Like, basically, you know, Osborne, your husband, is explosive. He's got a temper. He's an alcoholic. So when you get divorced, you got to blindside him. So start downloading all his financial data now. Get all this stuff now before he's able to lock you out. Pretty much, yeah. He, she's he, the lawyer suggests that get all of his financials in hand and all of his data so that you can have everything uh, prepared for the said divorce and this fight that's coming up because he doesn't know it's coming, but she's planning it, so she's gonna get all of his stuff off his computer and put it on a disc, which is the MacGuffin of the film. This disc that has this memoir and um, dates and numbers and dates and numbers on it. <laughs> I like the lawyer's advice. You must attack the turtle before he can draw back into his shell. Yes, right. <laughs> and it's funny how she is, again, just completely unemotional through this entire meeting with the lawyer. He's giving her all this advice, and she's just, yep, great, awesome, sounds good. And he's he's describing just a complete obliteration of this man's entire livelihood. And she's like, yep, that's great. <laughs> Okay, so now we've set the stage for the rich people in the movie. Now let's go to the not-rich people, who you argued were the main stars of the movie. I would think so, yes. Yeah, and I love the her... Okay, so this is uh, one of the Coen brothers. I forget which one is married to uh, uh, Francis McDormand. Is that Joel? I don't remember which, yeah, no. Unfortunately, the, the Coen brothers are more of a pair than Francis McDormand is with uh, whoever she's married to. <laughs> Yeah, but they always write movies for her. So Frances McDormand is in here as they – I love her character name because the way it rolls off the tongue. Linda Litsky. That's right. <laughs> okay, so describe the poor poor Linda Litsky to people. Uh, she's vain and I would say upbeat. She's always got a sunny disposition, but she's very much uh, – obsessed with her visual image her appearance she desperately wants to get plastic surgery to create a body that is ideal for locking down a husband i think is her ultimate goal right yeah linda litsky is about 40 or so she's mm. you know getting middle age she's not really in the best shape although ironically she works in a gym which i love yes yeah, sorry i like that everybody works at a gym right that that I guess Brad Pitt's in great shape, but the Rick, Richard Jenkins and uh, Linda Litsky are are gym managers, but they're not necessarily in the best shape, but they're in terrible shape. But and the gym, of course, is named Hard Bodies. Hard Bodies, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, Linda is a forty-year-old single, kind of a loser. Uh, she really has had no luck with dating, and uh, what she wants more than anything is plastic surgery. She's she tells us. I think it opens right with her having a consultant with a plastic surgeon. 
Yes, that's right. She's got several procedures uh, to get done. And throughout the throughout the meeting, the doctor is kind of just suggesting different things. And he's sort of being uh, conservative and she's being more uh, uh, assertive with uh, I want this and I want this. I want this. She wants to do a complete overhaul of her body, I think, is what she describes it as so that she can have a brand new her. Yeah, I've gone as far as I can with this body. Those are her words. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, so she is really out there searching for a guy. She needs a guy. She needs a new body to get there. She's going to need some money to pay for all these procedures because we learn right at the start of the movie, none of it's covered by insurance. Uh, she gets really pissed. She's like, I got to pay for this out of my own pocket for like her implants and everything. And this will lead to the storyline where she's going to have an opportunity to get some money fall into her lap. That's right. She sees a prime opportunity to extort uh, some money when the – disc that we talked about that has all of Osborne Cox's memoir, really, but some of his dates and some of his notes, uh, the disc gets left behind at hard bodies, and it gets found on the floor, just lying there. Okay, so we're going to get into this. It's going to get very convoluted very quickly here. Yes, it does get very convoluted, but again, if you're watching this, just, just know that it doesn't really matter, the finer details, but it's still very convoluted. Yes, it's all a huge spiral of... Uh... It's like a Three's Company episode. Just everyone a little confused on what's really going on. That's right. Okay, so we left out one other character. You talked about Richard Jenkins. That's Ted, the owner of Hard Bodies Gym. Kind of an older guy, pines for Linda Litsky, kind of in love with her, but she doesn't realize it. Yeah, he's very much in love with her, and he is not so subtle with his hinting that he, that he loves her, but she won't really listen to any of it. Well, yeah, because he's older, and she wants a younger, hot guy. Yeah, she is very vain. She is very superficial in a lot of her uh, romantic conquests. And that sort of explains why she wants to get a uh, new body. Well, I was going to say, that's the thing. You're used to Frances McDormand being very sympathetic and very likable in movies. She's kind of neither in this one. Yeah, she really isn't. I wouldn't really describe anybody in this movie as sympathetic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. We're going to meet the one character who probably has the most charisma of anybody in the movie, and we have not talked about Brad Pitt yet. Of course, yeah. Save the best for last. All right, describe Chad to people. That's Brad Pitt's character. Again, uh, well, okay, it should be going without saying that pretty much everybody in this movie is dumb. But Brad is the dumbest of the dumb. Uh, he is just a trainer at the gym who really just, he's a simple man. He enjoys doing his training. Uh, I don't really know much of his interests other than riding his bike and hydrating. But he gets very uh, supportive of Linda Litsky's uh, pursuit of love. So he sort of helps her in trying to pick a man. But, you know, he he also gets quite involved with the disc that is found at <laughs> <laughs> For some reason. I'm not really sure what he's after. It's never really explained. Okay, well, we'll, we'll try to delve into the psychology of Chad here when we get yeah. to him. But yeah, so, like I said before, he's basically a lab- Labrador retriever in human form. That's Brad Pitt. Always moving around, floppy-eared, just bouncing to his music. He's always got headphones on. He's so <laughs> not what you're used to from Brad Pitt. He's hilarious. He's very excitable, yeah. He, Brad Pitt is just going for it. He's chewing up as much scenery as he can. And he loves Linda. They work together. He's about 10 years younger than her, but they're best buddies, even though they have nothing in common. And they will they will be thrown together in this caper once this information falls into their lap. That's right. It's a great opportunity. Okay. So we're gonna, basically the whole rest of the movie is this disc, Osborne Cox's disc, falling into their hands at Hard Bodies. But there is a subplot here that i got to talk about. And this is the one that I remember everyone talked about when this movie came out, and that is... 
George Clooney and his invention he's working on in his basement. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this has no relevance to the rest of the movie at all whatsoever, but it always gets a laugh. So I'll I'll, I'll set it up here. So, yeah. So uh, George Clooney is having an affair with Tilda Swinton. His wife is suspicious because he's always out doing stuff and he's working on this thing in his basement. He's got some invention in the basement and his wife is kind of theorizing she may want to divorce George Clooney because she knows or she thinks he's cheating on her. And they play all this suspicious music when Clooney's down in his basement like he's building something and you get the impression he's building something or he's going to do something to kill his wife. But that is not where we're going at all with this, is it? No, of course not. (laughs) Of course not. (laughs) It's a great setup for an ultimate gag. It's great. It's great. And again, has nothing to do with the plot of the movie. No, no, of course not. I a little history. I seen I, I worked at a movie theater at the time that this movie came out and we used to get uh screenings. We did press screenings for movies and so I got to see this movie about a month before it came out and so it was nothing but really sort of uptight um movie reviewers, movie critics. So they don't like they laughed and chuckled at a few things, but when this gag came up it erupted in laughter <laughs> on the reveal of what he's building in the basement. Yeah, we'll save the reveal for later because the reveal is great. And I'm guessing that is not a scene you described to your mom when you pitched this movie. No, I didn't. I, you, why ruin it? Why ruin the surprise? This is what big reason why I say watch the movie before you because <laughs> the effect is great when you don't know it's coming. Okay, so we'll we'll put George Clooney aside for now. He's just a player. He will get involved in this later. But here we go to the main storyline of the movie that one day at Hardbody's gym, uh, this is Manolo, the uh, maintenance guy. He's the one who finds it, right? Yes, Manolo. Yeah, he finds the disc in the locker room. I think it just fell out of uh, a member's bag. I believe she works for the attorney. I think she has. She's the assistant. But anyway, she she goes to heart, uh, whoever it is leaves it at the gym. And Manolo, who's just somebody who works at the gym, finds it. He's uh, uh, what would you say? Manolo is got a vocabulary of eight words. About eight words, and he says them repeatedly. That's right. It's perfect. <laughs> it works for great comedic effect. Yeah, he reminds me of Pedro in Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah, he really does. <laughs> he really does. Yeah, okay, so to to paint the picture for you, so Tilda Swinton has downloaded all of Osborne Cox's financials and his memoir off their computer. She's brought it to her lawyer. The lawyer secretary is supposed to hold on to it. Somehow this disc fell out at Hardbody's gym. Manolo the tech or Manolo the the <laughs> maintenance guy has found it, hands it over to Richard Jenkins at Hardbody's and says, I found this disc, it's got this information on it. It was just laying there on the floor. And from here on out, it's just a mystery. What is on this mystery disc? That's right. (laughs) Brad Pitt's character puts it in the computer and they pull it up and he's looking at it. And you see it as he's trying to figure out what it is. And the way he describes it is so great. He just looks at it and just says, wow, there's just dates and numbers and dates, numbers. (laughs) Just says it over and over again. I swear Brad Pitt only has about 25 lines in this movie. I wrote down every single one of them. Yeah, they're all gold. They're all gold. So Brad's like, you know, the stupidest character in the movie sees this encoded data with numbers and dates, and he's like, you know what this is? This is secret encoded spy shit. That's right. <laughs> this is the shit. <laughs> this, 
that's the shit, man. These dates. This is high level, high tech, important stuff. And the gym owner, Ted, is like, I'm not comfortable. I don't want to see this stuff on my computer. Please get rid of it. But Brad Pitt and Francis McDormand realize they've have gold on their hands. This information has fallen right into their lap. That's right. They see an opportunity to get a Good Samaritan reward. <laughs> yes. And this is where Linda, who tries to be the, the hero of the movie, says we should put up a note. You know, someone may, maybe needs this disc. We should put up a note in the gym. And Brad Pitt says, a note? Wait, what would the note say? Highly classified shit found? That's right. <laughs> Does anybody lose their highly classified CIA shit? <laughs> <laughs> we got some secret CIA shit. If it's yours, come claim it. That's right. <laughs> That's perfect. So this is where we learn that Linda gets increasingly desperate. She needs this plastic surgery, blah, blah, blah. She's really frantic. And I think, is this where she and Chad hatch the plan to hold this for ransom, basically? Uh, just about, yeah. Brad Pitt, he finds out who owns the, whose disc it is. He finds out it's Osborne Cox. I believe he has a friend that sort of figures it out. And so they, he comes to Linda Litchkey's house later and they sort of hatch the plan that, hey, we have a chance to get some money out of this. So if we call uh, Osborne Cox, he'll be so happy that he obviously will give us a reward. He, we would be very surprised if he does not give us some sort of reward. Yeah. OK, so they know Osborne Cox works for the Pentagon. They don't know what he does, but Brad Pitt has already deduced. This is high-quality shit. This guy must be really high up. So they think this is like some high-level government secrets that somebody will want back as rewards. So, yeah, they hatch the whole plan, and Linda is kind of hesitant at first, right? Yeah, she's a little a little hesitant. She says, well, we don't really know who he is. And he says, well, why? Do you know every uh, secret, super-secret high-end guy in Washington? Yes, but but Chad is going to go for it. Chad is the real mastermind behind this plan. And so, That's right. I believe he convinces her by uh, it could help pay for her surgeries is how she gets all on board with it. Exactly. That's that's his logic. He says, you know, this Osborne Cox is going to want he's going to want to know his shit is secure. He's going to be relieved. He'll probably pay a lot of money. So that's Brad's involvement. He's just trying to help his friend. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, so here we go. One of the funniest scenes in any Coen Brothers movie, the phone call to Osborne Cox. <laughs> That's right. The, the phone call. <laughs> Brad Pitt will call uh, Osborne Cox at such an hour. I believe he calls him in the middle of the night, and he's very he, – he's trying to be very serious and sort of secretive, but it just comes up because he's so stupid. It's just so comedic and great. He calls him and says, I – I, I'm sorry to be calling you so late, but I thought you would be worried about the security of your shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the stupidest character in movie history, yeah, right. having a conversation with the most uptight, angry character that's in movie right. history, and they have no idea what the other person's talking about the entire conversation. It's wonderful. That's because Osborne Koss, of course, has no idea that his, his memoir has been leaked. <laughs> His memoir about nothing, about how people have wronged him. That's right. <laughs> so I quote this phone call all the time just because I love it. I just I, I have so many little quotes circled in my notes here. We just Brad Pitt saying, Osborne, Osborne Cox. He'll just keep repeating the name. And Ozzy's like, what? Yes, Osborne Cox, Osborne. Yes, it's me, you fucker. Who is this? <laughs> That's right. I believe he says, I'm a mere good Samaritan at least eight times through the phone call. <laughs> yes. I thought you might be worried about the security 
Security of what? Of your shit. What shit are you talking about, you fucker? That's right. That's right. And he figured, and then of course Osborne Cox realizes that he has his memoir when he starts reading it to him, and he he says the word rapport as report. (laughs) Yeah, Brad Pitt says report, and Ozzy gets so angry. He's not even so angry that they have his memoir. He's angry that Brad Pitt mispronounced a word. He's like, rapport, rapport, you moron, you fucking moron. So, so Brad Pitt is trying to blackmail him as carefully as he can without saying the word blackmail. He's like, I just thought, you know, we have your shit here. And why so uptight, Osborne Cox? That's right. <laughs> yeah. So Osborne eventually figures out it's blackmail. And that's, then, that's when he gets really mad. That's right. He says, it's money, of course. That's what it is. <laughs> And I believe once they uh once once he ends the phone call he he explains to his wife Tilda Swinton he says they have my memoir and I think they want money and she says why would anyone think that's worth anything? <laughs> yes, I, I love that. Okay, yeah, the end of the phone call is great. This is where so Osborne Cox realizes some idiot has his memoir is trying to blackmail him, and uh, and Osborne ends with listen to me you two clowns you have no idea what you're doing and I warn you and then Linda gets mad and says you warn us we warn you. We'll call you back with our demands. And she slams down the phone. So now. <laughs> Brad Pitt's still on the line. <laughs> yeah, he's still on the line. <laughs> yeah. And Brad Pitt's, I'm just very surprised he didn't give us the reward for his shit. <laughs> I'm very surprised. <laughs> yeah, so like you said, and then Osborne gets mad, tells his wife, there's somebody who has my book. They're trying to blackmail me. And she's like, who on earth would pay for that? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> She seems to be the only one who realizes that uh, he's stupid. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's see. We just There's a lot of character development here. We have Harry and his wife, where she leaves on Seattle for a book tour. We have uh, That's Katie. That's right, it gets very messy. Yeah, I'm trying to avoid some of the detail. I just want to stick to the main plot, because a lot of it's irrelevant to the storyline. That's right. I believe there's a line when, it, when uh, uh, one of the CIA people says, I don't know, it's very fuzzy. They all seem to be sleeping with each other. <laughs> yeah, the, the, yeah. We'll get to the funniest part later when the CIA and the high highest levels of security try to figure out what the hell's going on in this movie, and they'll have no idea. But uh, That's right. yeah, so Linda now knows. Well, Osborne Cox was really mad that we tried to blackmail him. This must be some really high level information. So she's already scheming in her head what to do if Osborne won't pay for his book. She's now. What is her master plan here? Well, she says, well, plan A, of course, is to get Osborne to give us the money, which we desperately need for my surgeries. But if that falls through, we'll just go to the Russians. They'll pay for this. <laughs> yes. Her plan is whatever we have, the Russians will give us money for it. We've Again, we've established this book means nothing to anybody, but everyone's convinced it's so valuable. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So valuable, of course, that the, another country would be willing to pay handsomely for this. And this is, I think, where we learn the details that uh, Tilda Swinton's lawyer lost the disc and they have to make a new copy. So we kind of figure out, we kind of learn, oh, that's how the disc ended up at Hard Bodies. But then we get a little plot twist here where, you know, Linda, Linda Litsky, this is Frances McDormand, is computer dating every guy in Washington, D.C. She, at some point, ends up dating the one guy who's dating every woman in Washington, D.C. She and George Clooney end up on a blind date. That's right, they do. And they were bound to cross paths eventually, the way that Clooney's running through D.C. So, yeah, they, they end up on a blind date. Well, earlier in the movie, she goes on a date with a very boring individual. And you find out uh, 
when she goes to George Clooney that she does the exact same first date with everybody. I guess it's some sort of test to see if like this is the one. Yeah, okay, yeah. What, so they go to this one comedy movie, and then they go out for Chinese food, and they have sex, and that's the same date every time. It's the same date, yeah. They see the same, they see the same rom-com, they do the same Chinese food restaurant. <laughs> so she'll take George Clooney on this on this date, and he, I think he passes with spades. He's very, very smooth, and he's very uh, uh, excitable, and she loves it. <laughs> uh, okay, there's a little detail I noticed, because you said on repeat viewings you catch little Coen Brothers details that are funny. Mm-hmm. This is how bad Linda Litsky is at online dating. All she wants is somebody who has a sense of humor. That's what she says through the movie. All I want is somebody who laughs and likes to laugh and likes comedy movies and has a sense of humor. If you watch that first guy who the date fails with, if you read his profile, if you zoom in on the screen, it says his only dislike is stand-up comedy, yet she still dates him. I, I saw I saw turn off stand-up <laughs> comedy. <laughs> Well, in these little details too, she sets up a she sets up a date to meet the person at the bench, and they they say early on that you the women don't provide pictures. So she goes through the park, and you can tell that she's lined up a few people, a few suitors. So she sort of walks down the aisle and see which one of these these men that she'll actually go on the date with. You'll notice that there's several men sitting waiting for her to show up, and she chooses this very boring man apparently. <laughs> yeah, I like uh. <laughs> So her boss, Ted, warns her when she starts dating George Clooney over the Internet. Linda falls in love with Clooney instantly because he's such yeah, a player. Does. Yeah, And And uh, Ted, her boss, is like, well, you know, you better watch out for this guy. He could be a creep. He could be one of these creeps who just cruises the Internet. And Linda's like, well, yeah, so am I. That's right. <laughs> she says it very nonchalantly. Yeah, me too. <laughs> okay. So she falls in love with George Clooney. She thinks it's love at first sight. She doesn't realize he's a she's a one night stand to him. Blah blah blah. So everyone's lives are getting intertwined. Like John said, everyone's just sleeping with everyone when no one really knows what's going on. But here we go. The plot's going to move forward because now it's part two of the blackmail of Osborne Cox, where they meet up with him. Brad Pitt meets with Osborne in a car. That's right. Mr. Black is what he calls himself. <laughs> he comes he comes riding up in a bicycle. You see Osborne Cox sitting in his car waiting for the mysterious man to show up. And you see a guy in an ill-fitting suit pedal his way up to the meeting place. <laughs> yeah, this, this is the scene you got to see to believe. This scene where Brad Pitt on his bike rides up to Ozzy and sits in the car. So you got Brad Pitt and John Malkovich just screaming at each other again because they're so different. <laughs> they, can't, they can't come to an agreement on uh, how to settle the conflict of who has the memoir and who's going to pay for it. So they just sort of go back and forth. It's just a contest of uh, idiocy. Okay, here is possibly the funniest line in this movie, with the exception of anything J.K. Simmons says later. Of course, yes. Where, where, so... Uh, Malkovich is screaming at Brad Pitt. He's like, this is blackmail. That is a felony, what you are doing, young man. And Brad Pitt says, perhaps, but appearances can be deceptive. That's <laughs> and then, right. And the whole time he does this little glare. The whole time he just sort of has this very ominous glare, Brad Pitt. <laughs> yeah. And Ozzy's like, this is a federal crime. You will experience a shitstorm of consequences, my friend, that will make your head spin faster than the than the wheels on your Schwinn bicycle back there. And, and Brad just laughs. He's like, ha, ah, you think that's a Schwinn? <laughs> Checkmate, sir. <laughs> so, yeah, so Ozzy just demands, give me the CD with my info on it. And, and Chad's like, no, give me the money first. And it ends with John Malkovich punching him in the nose. That's right. <laughs> no deal, fucker. 
<laughs> he just gets punched and he looks at him in, in utter shock. <laughs> yeah, he had no idea that this guy would be angry about being blackmailed. That's right. <laughs> well, he still worked up that he didn't get his reward. Yeah, so, so Brad Pitt gets punched in the nose. They don't get the money. Ozzy will not give in to blackmailers. And this is where Linda goes into plan B where we go and she's going to sell the CD of secrets to the Russians. That's right. Uh, plan A didn't work, so now it's time to go to Russia because they will love this. That's okay. And my wife pointed this out. Every time there's like four different scenes in the Russian embassy between Linda Litsky and the Russians, and she calls him a different name. I think every time she never gets his name right. Oh, is that right? I didn't Mr. notice that. Mister Kropotkin, Mister Krabkin, Mister Krapkun. Yeah, she she never quite gets his name right. But yeah, this is just a wonderful scene of just dry humor of her going to the Russian embassy and the Russians having no idea what the hell she's talking about. That's right. And the whole time Brad Pitt has got a tissue up his nose because he's got the nosebleed from the sucker punch. <laughs> Okay, so, yeah, Linda Litsky, this is Franz McDormand, telling the Russians, I have this really high-security info you'd want. I want to sell American secrets. And this, again, this is just the Russian embassy in Washington, D.C. These aren't anybody high-ranking or anything. That's right. These are just regular office people. And she says, yep, that's just, just a small taste of the goods. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So the Russian guy, they're just humoring her. They're like, okay, well, look at this. I think they said that this guy that they're meeting is actually somebody who uh, cooperate or he works with the CIA as well, because this is how the CIA knows what's going on. <laughs> yes. Uh, the Russians take it in a back room and they're like, PC or Mac? And they're like, I think it's PC. And so they, they take it. The Russians look at it and they're like, we'll get back to you. Or they're like, they'll consider it. And this another great line here where uh, Francis McDormand tells Brad Pitt, the fish has bitten. And Brad Pitt's like, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He seems cool. <laughs> that, that's not the response to that comment. Well, I also like that she's also hurrying the, the Russians as well because she has a date. She said, well, can we speed this up, please? I have a date. I have a date. <laughs> yeah. The, so the, the Russians are like, well, there's some information on the CD. We have to decrypt it and see what it is. They're like, is there more? And she's like, oh, yeah, there's a lot more. You buy this for me. I'll give you more. And they're like, oh, interesting. And they're trying to figure out what her angle is. And I love this part that the guy's like. Wait, you're just selling this, selling this to us because you want money? You're not ideological? And she's like, I don't think we are. Or, no, Brad Pitt says that. I don't think so. We're I not don't ready. think so. That's right. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> are we? <laughs> That's perfect. All right. So the uh, CD has been brought to the Russians. The Russians are considering if they want to buy it from her. And now we go back to Linda dating George Clooney. And this is where we're going to get the reveal of what this machine is. He's been working in his basement. And uh, as John said, this this is quite a crowd pleaser in the theater. Oh, yeah. It's 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 fantastic. It's an ultimate gag. He he sort of says, hey, let's come on down to the basement. And I'll show you this thing. He says, I saw an ad for this thing in a, a gentleman's magazine and they, they wanted twelve hundred dollars for it. And I said, well, you know, I could whip one of these things up for one hundred dollars. He walks her down to the basement and he. It's this sort of a chair. You see there's some sort of chair. And she says, just, well, what is this thing? And he says, well, you sit down in the chair. You get nice and comfortable. And he, he leans the chair backwards. And as he leans it backwards, it reveals the purpose of the chair, which is which is what, Mario? Oh, thank you for letting me explain it. Of course. It is a – Harry has created a sex chair, which is basically has a large dildo that will pop up. So you either sit a man or a woman. I guess either one would work. They lay back in the chair – 
It's got a little counterweight, and it just pushes the dildo up into you repeatedly. So it's an automated sex chair. <laughs> yeah, you've been thinking for 40 minutes that this is some ominous invention he's working on in his basement to kill his wife. No, this is his little sex chair. That's right. <laughs> well, he's he's worked on it so passionately. He's guarded it so well. He has it locked in his basement with a chain and lock. This <laughs> all it is. It's just a sex chair. Well, he does point out, you know, dildos aren't cheap. So we do learn something from this movie. That's, we are, we, it is educational in some sense. That might be the only thing we learn in this movie, actually. <laughs> Maybe that's the Coen brothers' joke on us. That's right. It could be it. I would, as part of the trivia, I was looking at it. They said that the, the, the idea of this came from they heard somebody telling this exact same story the way that george Clooney describes it that he saw it in a gentleman's magazine and they thought it was overpriced and said i could make that for a hundred dollars and they heard so i don't know who it was it was some somebody on another project described this to them that they actually made this so this is a real story and that's why it's in the movie <laughs> and again this has nothing to do with the rest of the movie other than george Clooney is lonely and horny and single and so is linda and she loves the chair. She's like, wow. She thinks he's the greatest guy ever. Yeah, she's all she's all on board. She loves it. She says, this is fantastic. <laughs> okay, so yeah, move aside. So Harry's story is basically done. We learned all he does is date women and has a sex chair. But now it's going to escalate some tensions because Ozzy, you know, Ozzy still has connections in the uh, Pentagon. He still has some people in Secret Service and stuff that know stuff. And he finds out that his memoirs are now in the hands of the Russians. And he's like, why the hell do the Russians have my memoir? <laughs> I believe he says, wait, the Russians? <laughs> really? The Russians? <laughs> I'm writing a book about my job. Why do the Russians care? So all of a sudden there's all this min misinformation going around. Everyone's confused who has what information and why. But this is where I think Ozzy officially gets served with divorce papers, right? That's right. This is where he finds out that he's about to really be in some trouble with his divorce. So he's going to end up having to move out. You know, they, he gets served with divorce papers. He goes home and the locks have been changed and he's officially out. So he has to go live in his boat. <laughs> yes. So Ozzy is either either even more angry and bitter now. And uh, this this movie's going to spiral into tragedy. Again, it's it's a very dark comedy. We're going to start getting some deaths in this movie that don't need to happen. And fortunately, the first one is going to be our good friend Brad Pitt. Oh, I still to this day, I wish it would change. Other, I wish it would go differently every time I watch it. Maybe he just doesn't die, but he is going to die, unfortunately. Yeah, and there's a complicated series of events that leads to this death. So let me try to set it up for you. So Linda and Chad need more information on Ozzy. They've told the Russians, we have this disc, the Russians seem interested, they need more. So they're going to break into Osborne Cox's house to get more data, correct? Yes, yeah, so they, Brad Pitt needs to go into the house to get more off of the computer. So he's going to go in there. But of course, Osborne has been kicked out, so he's not living there. While at the same time, George Clooney has decided to nestle right in. He's he's planted his flag at the house. He brought the ramp for crying out loud. So the place is his now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So here's the sequence of events, and I had to actually had to watch this movie twice to kind of catch how all this gets set up. So George Clooney is banging Tilda Swinton. After every every time he sleeps with a woman, he goes for a run. That's his thing. I have to go for a run. That's right. He's gonna jog back to her house. Who? Now, Osborne Cox has been kicked out of this house, so he's not allowed in there. 
Only George Clooney has a key because he's the new boyfriend. George Clooney is going to go into Osborne Cox's house at the same time Brad Pitt is in there. And we'll just say hilarity will ensue. How about that? Yeah. So, yeah. So Brad Pitt is broken in while George Clooney went for his run. Uh, they He assumed that everyone is left. So he's in the house and George Clooney makes his way back. So as George Clooney comes back in, Brad Pitt has to go hide in the closet, which unfortunately is the closet to the bedroom that George Clooney heads to. He gets in the shower and he, he can't. He can't get out. He doesn't see an opening to sneak out. And the whole time, he's just paranoid. And George Clooney is also a paranoid individual. He talks earlier about how you're you're trained to have the gun as sort of second nature. So he gets spooked when he finally enters the closet. And unfortunately, second nature kicks in and he just pulls the trigger and Brad Pitt is no more. He gets shot right in the head. Yeah, we, we, I guess we've neglected to mention this earlier. So George Clooney's character is a federal marshal. He carries a gun, but he's very proud of the fact he's never discharged his gun ever. That's his trademark. I've been in doing this job 20 years, had a gun, never had to just discharge it. But as you said, he's very paranoid. He's always looking around for people watching him. He knows he's sleeping with every woman in D.C., so he always is on the lookout to see who's watching, who's paying attention. And when he sees Brad Pitt in the closet, he freaks out, grabs his gun, and for the first time in his life discharges it, shoots Brad Pitt. And so we have our first murder, even though George Clooney and Brad Pitt have no idea who each other were. Yep, has <laughs> no idea why. And he, he never will find out who he is because thanks to uh, Linda Litsky, the suit that Brad Pitt is wearing is pretty much like stripped of any identification. And Brad Pitt also, his wallet has no information on it. So George Clooney has this sort of ghost that's haunting over him. He has no idea who this man is that he has just killed <laughs> and why he is in the house. Yeah, George Clooney freaks out. He's like, I killed a spook, which I had to look up. That means an FBI agent. He thinks he has killed an FBI agent with no identity on him. So, uh, and I know we neglected to say this earlier. Throughout the movie, George Clooney is, in fact, being followed, which is why he's so paranoid. There is a car that keeps trailing him throughout his escapade. So he is very, very uh, paranoid with reason because it is really happening. Now, although that's always also one of the other punchlines in the movie, why is he being followed? Do you remember? Oh, yes, because his wife is filing for divorce, and so the attorney's office has hired somebody to follow George Clooney around to prove his indiscretions and infidelity. Yeah, Clooney is cheating on his wife. She's cheating on him in Seattle with her children's book career. Everyone's cheating on everyone in this movie. He's being served with divorce papers, so everyone's being followed. Everyone's disloyaled everyone, but we have our first murder between two characters who have never even met before. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they've never met each other they don't have any intersecting interests really and just a sequence of bad luck and bad timing and perfect comedy sort of leads to brad pitt just getting shot right in the head yeah the first time you see this movie you will not see that scene coming and brad pitt's got the derp- derpiest look on his face when he gets right before he gets shot it, it always always makes me laugh <laughs> it's great it's so great. My friend, uh, I told him I was going to be talking about this one. He said, make sure you mention the look on Brad Pitt's face before he gets shot. So I'm glad you brought it up. You're not the only one that's noticed it. Yeah, my father-in-law, I remember him saying, I want a screensaver just of Brad Pitt's face right before he gets shot. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think he's just some sort of panic of how he's going to smooth the situation out. and it's just, It doesn't work out. So George Clooney, we don't see this. This all happens off camera. We'll hear about it later. George Clooney kills Brad Pitt, 
strips his body of all identifying uh, details, and then dumps in the Potomac River. And then he tries to flee. So, so all of a sudden, all this chaos going along, we have a murder. And now we cut to the, I would say the Greek chorus of this movie, J.K. Simmons in the Pentagon, where he's being debriefed by his uh, underlings on the situation that's developing with Osborne Cox. Yeah, this is the first of a... Uh... This is the first of two scenes with J.K. Simmons where, you know, George Clooney has killed Brad Pitt. So then they feel that the situation has escalated. So they're going to fill in J.K. Simmons about what's been happening. And he sort of sits with the same disbelief as the audience sort of does is just, uh, OK, uh, not sure what's happening. Uh, but eh, just just wait and see how it plays out. <laughs> Yeah, J.K. Simmons has two scenes in this movie. He never stands up. He just sits behind a desk, and he steals the whole goddamn movie. He really does. Yeah, I tried to write down most of the scene where his uh, his subordinate is David Rash. That's, uh, if you guys remember the TV show Sledgehammer, he was Sledgehammer back in the 80s. But he's in there reporting to J.K. Simmons, and J.K. Simmons is like, all right, what's going on? Well, uh, we're not sure what's going on, sir, but it's messy. <laughs> what do you mean? Messy how? Well... The Russians have files from our former analyst, Osborne Cox. And J.K. Simmons like, why? Not clear, sir. That's right. And I believe, yeah, that's right. I believe he double takes us, the Russians? Why? <laughs> Which everyone does. Yeah. Why would the Russians care about Osborne Cox? And then, well, uh, apparently this, uh, we have Linda Litsky and Harry Farrar. They appear to be sleeping together. Why? I'm not sure, sir. Well, whoa. And so J.K. Simmons learns all about Brad Pitt being killed and dumped in the Potomac. And they're like, yeah, this Harry Farrar shot this man. Why? I don't know, sir. That's right. He says, I don't know. I don't know. I believe the button of this first scene is great when he just says, okay, well, what was Osborne Cox clearance level? And he says, level three. He says, all right, no big deal. Who's Linda Litsky? Oh, we're not sure. We're fuzzy on her. So nobody seems to know, but all, all the general cares about is how what Osborne Cox's clearance level was, what kind of secrets could be in the Russians' hands. We learn he's level three, which apparently is very low, I would assume. That's right. I assume it's very low because he does not seem panicked about the information that has just been given to the Russians. Yes. So J.K. Simmons wraps up the scene with, well, if something big happens, just let me know. Oh, and uh, that body that was dumped in the bay, Brad Pitt, burn it, get rid of it. That's right. I believe he says, uh, he says, well, just keep an eye on it and get back to me when, I don't know, it makes sense. <laughs> yes. And here's the fun part of this movie. It will never make sense. Nothing right. will continue to not make sense. Every, everything will continue not to make sense. It's going to be fun. <laughs> yes. Spoiler alert. doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of convoluted stuff here I don't even want to get into because it's just going to complicate the plot, the podcast. We have... You know, Ozzy plotting revenge against the blackmailers. We have Linda going into a tailspin because Brad Pitt is dead. She thinks he's been kidnapped by the Russians. That's right. <laughs> she doesn't know what happened to him. She never, she never sees him again. Yeah, they never, they never really do find out. Brad Pitt is just, for all intents and purposes, just scrubbed from the earth at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so Ted, the owner of Hard Body, is concerned about Linda because Linda, because she's crying now, and like he's gonna do something to solve her, cause, to solve it for her, because he's in love with her. It's just getting really complicated. And uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, so this is where I think the Russians start calling Linda at Hard Bodies to see if she can get more information. Uh, no, I think she she is just determined to get more information. They end up telling her that they're not interested in it. They say, yeah, it's, this is dribble. This is nothing. And so she then gets into her head that they just haven't seen the whole thing. So then she then tells Richard Jenkins that she needs everything. Okay, yeah. It's going to be a whole series of comedy events. Again, this movie's only 90 minutes. we got to wrap it up real quick here. Where uh, uh, This is where... 
George Clooney has killed somebody. He thinks the feds are after him. He knows he's being watched. And this is where he gets served with divorce papers and he gets in a fist fight because he knows the guy's been following him. That's right. This is where he finds out that he hasn't been being followed by any higher power. It's just a divorce lawyer. Okay, and this is where we get the confrontation between Linda and the Russians. Like you said, she goes there. She says, uh, are you going to give us money? And they're like, no, this is drivel. This is nothing. And she's like, dribble? And they're like, no, drivel. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> And then she, she, I believe she finds out that Brad Pitt is not with the Russians. And so she, she sort of needs to find out who he's with too. And she never really does. <laughs> Man. Okay. It's going to be really tough to summarize the next part of the movie. This where everything comes together. It's a real, yeah, it really does accelerate. It's a like a real fast 20 minutes of how it all comes, <laughs> comes together. <laughs> okay. So yeah, George Clooney goes to Linda. He's in a panic. And then, uh, this is where, uh, like, he wasn't really intending to ever talk to her again. She was a one night stand, but now he needs her. Cause yeah. now he's scared. Well, he's thrown out of his house with his wife. So now it's like, yeah, he gets thrown out and he picks a fight with uh, Tilda Swinton because he, he, he moves out of Osborne's house. Because she, she says something sort of biting to him and because he's in a, he's in a sort of daze, just slicing carrots. I always found that very funny how he's slicing carrots and it's just a, just a huge pile of carrot slices on the counter. He's just in a daze. And she just sort of says, like, um, are you done slicing carrots? And she just looks at her and says, you're a very negative person. You know that? <laughs> yeah. He chopped the hell out of that carrot. That's right. He runs upstairs, grabs his sex ramp, and storms out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to end in tragedy here, though. So the basic gist of it is Osborne Cox learns that his – finances have all been drained he's pissed that his wife has taken all his money locked him out of his house so he grabs a hatchet on his boat goes back to his house to confront her break into the house get his stuff back at the same time linda confesses to ted the older guy at the gym what she's done that brad pitt's missing that they're blackmailing osborne cox blah 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 we need more information for the russians because they've kidnapped brad pitt we need more info for them so the old guy, Ted, is going to go to Osborne Cox's house to get more information for Linda. That's right. He's hopelessly in love with Linda, and he says, well, he will he decides to go and get all of this stuff so that he can hopefully win her affection. And that just happens to be the time that Osborne Cox, who is also breaks in at home and is also very upset. <laughs> so this is actually the second time in the movie two people who have never met will be involved in a murder at Osborne Cox's house. That's right. That's right. He, he sees he sees uh, uh, Richard Jenkins uh, or Ted, the gym, uh, the gym owner, and is just convinced that that's his wife's ex-lover. Yeah, this is and this is actually sad when you think about it. This is actually kind of tragic. We're laughing, but it's played very comedically that poor Richard Jenkins is just there. He's only there to be the nice guy and help Linda out and help her get out of this pickle. And Ozzy is going to murder him with a hatchet. That's right. In a fit of rage, he, he shoots him first, and as Richard Jenkins is making his escape, he chases him down with a hatchet. <laughs> it's a very brutal scene as well. I didn't, I've forgotten that he, he could slice into the head. Yeah, that's why I compare this to Fargo. It's like the random wood chipper showing up at the end. You kind of forget how brutal that is. but It is a very brutal scene. <laughs> yeah. So John Malkovich confronts Richard Jenkins. Who are you? Are you are you with the CIA? Who are you? Are you my wife's lover? And he's like, No, I'm just uh, I'm a simple gym owner, sir. And, <laughs> I'm not yeah. here representing hard bodies. Yeah, that's the line that gets me. I know you. You're from that gym. I am not representing hard bodies here today, sir. <laughs> 
And then he says, you are the idiocy of mankind. And he says, I don't represent that either. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, Malkovich hatchets him really brutally. Richard Jenkins dies. So, like, we've had two murders now. Everybody's story has changed. Everything has ended horribly. And this is literally the end of the movie. And uh, (laughs) although I think we I forgot the scene where George Clooney is dating Linda and they're in the park and he sees other people around that Linda knows and he thinks that Linda's a CIA agent. So George Clooney flees the country and tries to fly to like South America. Venezuela. Venezuela. Venezuela yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. Cause he, he flees the park because you know, he's thinking people are spying on him, but in reality it's just all of the people that Linda Litsky has dated in the past and they're just recognizing her and he thinks they're spying on him. So he's convinced that she's working for someone and he's paranoid and just flees the movie. <laughs> he's fleeing the interview. He's fleeing the interview. That's right. <laughs> Fargo, good Fargo reference. So really that's the end of the movie that everybody's story has ended up horribly and then we're going to end with J.K. Simmons. Now we go back to the Pentagon where J.K. Simmons and his flunky will try to describe or try to explain what has happened. And they cannot. Yeah, that's right. They give a great summary of just where everybody's story is going to end because the movie doesn't show you where it ends. We just explain it to us where it's just, just he asks, well, where's George Clooney? He says, well, we, we found him at the airport trying to get on go to Venezuela. And he says, well, he says, why was he going to Venezuela? He says, well, I think we have no extradition in Venezuela. They said, what should we do? And he says, well, send him to Venezuela. Yeah, J.K. Simmons like, fuck it, let him go, who cares? That's right. That, that solves our problem. <laughs> yeah, all right, so he's gone. Well, what's next? And the, the young guy's like, well, the gym manager is dead, and uh, the Brad Pitt, his body is burned, dumped in the Chesapeake. And uh, and, the, and what did he say? Uh, the, oh, our CIA, our CIA surveillance shot Osborne Cox. And J.K. Simmons like, great, good. Is he dead? <laughs> they said, well, no. <laughs> they said, we don't think he has any uh, vital or any brain function, so he may wake up, he may not. And he says, well, if he wakes up, we'll deal with it then. <laughs> yeah, so, J.K. Simmons is so confused. He's like, everyone's dead. Uh, I'm not sure what happened. Uh, the Russians were involved. There was some data. But uh, G- Jesus, what a clusterfuck. That's right. And they asked, did I forget anyone? And she says, well, there is the gym woman, Linda Litsky. And he goes, oh, that's right. God damn it. I keep forgetting <laughs> No, I forgot about this because I keep saying everything like nobody wins in this movie. Nobody learns. No lessons learned. There are no winners. But Linda Litsky does get her plastic surgery, does she? That's right. That's right. He says, he says, this is Jim woman. He says, what do they, he J.K. Simmons says, well, why do you have her? And he, he says, well, you know, she says she's willing to play ball and sit on everything if we pay for some cosmetic surgeries. <laughs> And then he, J.K. Simmons says, well, how much is it? He says, well, there's a bunch of them. And he says, ah, screw it. Pay it. Yeah, pay it. Fuck it. Just pay it. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> All he cares about is this just being cleaned up and just over with. He doesn't care about anything other than this just being done. Yeah, just the paperwork. The paperwork is the big hassle. He doesn't want the paperwork. <laughs> That's right. If she gets the surgeries, she goes away. Everyone else is dead. Fuck it. Who cares? That's right. <laughs> and so here's the immortal last lines of this movie where J.K. Simmons is like, Jesus fucking Christ. What did we learn, Palmer? And Palmer's like, I don't know, sir. And J.K.'s like, I don't fucking know either. Well, I guess we learned not to do it again. And he's like, yes, sir. And he's like, fuck it if I know what we did. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It's hard to say. <laughs> That's the great, great closing lines. <laughs> Just don't know what we did. <laughs> yeah. Just don't do it again. All right. <laughs> And the movie just pans out of the Pentagon, goes up to space, and that's literally it. 
that's, <laughs> that's the end of the movie. That's the point of the movie. A bunch of stuff happened. We don't know why. Guess we learned not to do it again. All right. Make it go away. That's right. <laughs> yep. J.K. Simmons is pretty much the audience. He says, I, I don't know what it is that we saw, but we did. <laughs> And I can just imagine, I guess this was kind of like uh, the first time we watched it, I guess my wife and I liked parts of it, but we were probably a little underwhelmed, like that was it. It's such a slight movie that's like nothing, it's, it seems so short and uneventful and it just ends. That's right. Yep. But when you watch it the second time, I'm like, oh, this is just hilarious because it's like such a like a big middle finger at just the way movies are structured in general. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think this is one of the reasons why it's so underappreciated is that they did No Country for Old Men, and that was sort of like a a statement movie. That movie felt like it meant something, and this was their follow-up, and it was just a complete a sort of joke to the audience of like, oh, you think that we're, we're something bigger? No, we're just going to have fun with you. <laughs> yes. All we are is paperwork in somebody's eyes. <laughs> That's right. Our death means it's more paperwork for somebody, so try not to hassle your higher-ups. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> And that's it. And again, just it really requires a certain type of cynical mindset and a certain type of sense of humor to really love this movie. But damn it, I have both of those and I love this movie. That's right. I'm proud to be cynical enough to love this movie. <laughs> yeah, I was so glad because uh, I've had a couple people in the past wanting to come on on staff picks to talk about this. And I'm really glad I finally got you on here because you clearly love this movie as much as I do. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I love it. It's great. It's just a good laugh. I've forgotten it. Like you said, it's been a minute since you watched it. And it had been a minute for me, too. I usually watch it when I go through a Coen Brothers phase, but I just really put it on. And I just was laughing so hard at the things that I'd forgotten about. I had forgotten about the sex chair. I don't know how you could forget, <laughs> but I had forgotten about it. And then when he started building, I said, oh, that's right. I forgot. I just started laughing so hard. Yeah, and just little throwaway stuff like uh, her date being turned off by a sense of humor, and that's all she wants is a sense of humor. Richard Jenkins saying, I, I do not represent hard bodies as he's in his, <laughs> being about to be murdered. <laughs> and this this the weird rom-com that they go and see, it's just so it's so obviously bad, but it's just, it's just they're, the characters are laughing at it like it's brilliant. It's great. I love it. <laughs> and also, just I guess since we're mentioning little things we love, Frances McDormand, the laugh that she gives to Linda Litsky. <laughs> Is the most annoying, like, donkey laugh, like, oh. yeah, that's right. <laughs> But, you know, Linda gets, she gets her plastic surgery at the end, so I guess she wins. She did. She did get what she wanted. It's, <laughs> I guess that makes sense. I don't know. I've always wondered what Tilda Swinton, like, does with her life, because everybody she knows is now gone. Well, like, she really would have cared. Yeah, like, she cares at all, yeah. <laughs> but... She's got all the family's money. Yeah, she's got Ozzy's money. She's got her practice with kids. She's she's set. Yeah, I mean, yeah, she I fi she figured she was going to end up with George Clooney, and then just both of them, you know, John Malkovich is dead, and George Clooney has fled the country. So. <laughs> and I guess uh, George Clooney's wife is still writing children's books about the filibuster. Yeah, about <laughs> the such a great little detail that I never noticed until this rewatch. <laughs> All right. Hopefully we have done that movie justice. I am looking at my watch. We actually, that was an 80 minute podcast for a 90 minute movie. We almost did it real time. That's right. That's right. And I know we were kind of all over the place, but the movie's all over the place. Yeah, well, uh, I specifically tried to cut out some of the more complicated stuff so it's easier to follow in a podcast. But yeah, it's a, it's a movie I'd recommend. Maybe not for everyone, but there are certain people that will were, were really, really, really love this movie. That's all I got to say. Yeah, it, it's a, it has a, a niche audience. <laughs> now, okay. So this was your first time on Staff Picks. That was a lot of fun. I felt we, like we had a good chemistry. So are there any other movies you 
kind of would like would ever want to come back and talk about again that you don't think people give enough love to? Oh, well, I, I, I didn't put any thought into this question. <laughs> yeah, I was going to put you on the spot for a really yeah. uh, profound question. <laughs> you put me on the spot. Yeah, I know. I, it's, I, it's one of those things I don't I, I don't know off the top of my head, but if I see it, I would know that's what it is. Uh, I, I know I know Moneyball was one that you had mentioned in the past. I love that movie, but I don't know if that movie gets overlooked or not. Yeah, I'm actually I'm set up to record that one in about two weeks. Oh, perfect. A surprisingly much different Brad Pitt movie. Yeah, very different. I I I think that this might be one of Brad Pitt's best performances. I always put Moneyball and then more recently Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as my favorite of his movies. I'd agree with all those. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. But yeah, like uh, nothing comes to mind. But you know what? If I see a title, I would know it then. Okay, well, I will, I will probably pitch you some titles behind the scenes here because I have a bunch of movies I've been saving up, and anybody who would like Burn After Reading will probably like some of these other ones. Oh, perfect, yeah. Like I said, I, 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 I go for a lot of directors, so like I said, if a Scorsese, Tarantino, Coen Brothers, Paul Thomas Anderson, I, I chase those guys, and I love obscure comedies too. Okay, uh, we, we shall talk again then. Yeah, of course. Okay, before we sign off, how can people find you if they want to hear you on your uh, NFL podcast? Um, we have an NFL, or sorry, our NFL podcast is, it's called the AFC South Fan Battle Podcast. So we're pretty, uh, exclusive to the AFC South, the least watched division in all of football. So if you are one of the three people that like one of those teams, uh, this podcast is for you. <laughs> wow. I thought staff picks had a niche audience, but you've, you've topped me. That's right. There's a, <laughs> the Tennessee Titans, Indianapolis Colts, Jacksonville Jaguars, and Houston Texans. Yes, if you like those four teams, you're going to love our show. <laughs> okay, well, that does remind me. Are there any good football movies you think I need to do on staff picks? I think football is one of the worst sports to do a movie off of. I think mm-hmm. baseball is the best movie, movie sport. I think baseball makes for the best movies. There's so many baseball movies that I can think of that I love. I think the 90s was a good time for him. They, the Sandlot was one, but I think Rookie of the Year is one that doesn't get a lot of love that I think probably should now that you mention it. And then there was a – oh, blanket. There was the – there's three from the 90s that I always loved. Now I'm blanking on the third. Anyway, uh, but football movies, uh, I know a lot of people like The Longest Yard. Mm-hmm. Um, not, the, yeah, not the Adam Sandler one. The original one with Burt Reynolds is probably the biggest one. Um Remember the Titans is probably the best one I'd say, mm-hmm. but I can't think again. Football is a tough one to do movies off of. I think Friday Night Lights maybe could be a, one of the better ones. Yeah, it is is Rudy count? Is Rudy underrated? <laughs> I think Rudy's properly rated. I think since Joe Montana has come out and pretty much negated that movie, I think it's just got <laughs> less popular. Yeah, it's for people who don't know that movie, Rudy, totally beloved. Every single person who was involved with the movie or was at Notre Dame at the time said that movie is complete horse shit. That's right. <laughs> that they all hated Rudy Rudiger. That's right. <laughs> and like when they were cheering for him and carrying him off the field at the end of the last game, that was sarcastic because they hated him. That's right. <laughs> so, yeah, maybe we won't do Rudy. I love Rudy, but yeah, it is tough to uh, reconcile that with the truth. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's any good football movies I could think of. Uh <laughs> It's a tough sport to do a movie off of. It really is. Yeah, I mean, there was uh, there's that one. Uh, Kurt Russell and Robin Williams were in one in the '80s. I forget what it was called. Best Years of Our Lives or something. And I will say, I think I think Any Given Sunday is underrated, even though it's a total mess. Okay. 
Okay, I'm 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 trying to do a lot of sports movies in this upcoming batch of episodes. We're doing Moneyball. I'm doing Major League. I want to do Mister Three Thousand. I love that movie with Bernie Mac. I've seen it once, but I remember really liking it when I saw it. Yeah, it's no one ever talks about it. It's one that I've liked. I've already done Little Big League. Uh, let's see. I might do The Natural one day. I don't know. But I am doing a uh, basketball podcast as well that somebody talked me into doing Blue Chips, which is a movie I haven't seen in forever. So, But, yeah, football movies are much tougher. Yeah, they really are. I just don't think they translate to a sort of a cinematic or storyline. This is why I know I think that's why baseball works so perfectly. I think baseball, the the sport itself, just works great for a movie. Yeah, I agree with you. Okay, well we're getting off the topic here. We'll save this. Yeah, we're very off task. <laughs> okay, well uh, anything you want to say about Burn After Reading before we sign off and send uh, the people out to go watch it again? Uh, no, I think uh, I think we said it on the top and throughout. It's just it's it is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I definitely would not consider this a lesser Coen Brothers movie. I'd put it in my top two. I don't know if I like it as much as Fargo. I'd put Fargo as my number one. I put this as my number two. But I have to see No Country for Old Men again. And again, I like Big Lebowski, just not as much as most people. Yeah, and I, I No Country for Old Men, I think, is like I like that movie, but not as a Coen Brothers movie. I just like it as a movie. I think it's just a really great movie, but it just happened to be made by the Coen Brothers. Uh, Big Lebowski is my favorite of it, but I'm not very um, – unique in that way so that's why i, I like uh your show with uh that we're talking about movies that just don't get enough love so burn after reading gets a great highlight that way and that's just like your opinion man yeah that's right <laughs> <laughs> sorry i was trying to think of a lebowski quote to drop on you oh that's perfect <laughs> okay well once again everybody thanks for listening my name is mario lanza this is staff picks if you need to reach me you can reach me at staff picks podcast at gmail.com or on twitter at mario j lanza and until next time, I'll be out there searching for more movies that deserve more love. And fuck if I know what lesson we learned from them. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye. What on earth are you talking about? Who am I speaking to? Uh, I, your files, your uh, the documents. I know these documents are sensitive, but I am perfectly willing to give back to you your sensitive shit. You know, at a, at a time of your choosing. What documents are you talking about? Osborne Cox. Hello, it's Osborne Cox. Who the fuck are you? What documents are you talking about? Okay. The bureau chief in Belgrade, we all call Slovak the Butcher. He had very little report with his staff and his dispatches. Rapport. Very little rapport with his staff, fucking moron. How did you get this? Who Don't blow a gasket, Osborne. Listen, listen, listen. I, I, we have... It's not important way where. Over your fucking head. I don't know who the fuck you are, but you have no idea what you're doing. Oh, why so uptight, Osborne Cox?